0: This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston Texas. for more information about UPBC visit upbchouston.org let's uh, open our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We have your Bible let me invite you to open it to Luke chapter 9 we're going to uh, we'll begin looking there in verse 51 through the end of the chapter and this will kind of conclude our series through Luke for uh, 2023 and we'll pick it up, Lord willing, next year, and we'll begin um, looking at um, kind of an Advent series um, through the rest of the year. So we look forward to, to that and look forward to what God has for us. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the side um, shelves there. You'd be helped to have one of those as you go through our time together, and uh, we'd love to, for you to have it as a gift from us. If you don't have a copy at home, please take one with you. Let's look together at God's Word. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. Let's pray. Lord, would you put our feet solidly on the rock of Christ as we look to your word now? And Lord, we pray that we would see you as you are in all of your glory and what you have done for us. And Lord, that we would hear you. When we open your word, we know we hear your voice. And we pray we would hear you and we would follow you. Lord, we pray that we would not define discipleship on our own. We do live in a country, and an age where that could easily happen, and we could be eternally wrong. And so may we have discipleship defined for us by you. And we pray that we would see you and come to you and follow you. Would you build your church, we pray. Would you help us to put our hand to the plow and never look back? We ask that you would do this. Do more, Lord, than we can ask or imagine. Do more in the hearts of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I read over this passage, a couple of songs came to mind. I Surrender All, and I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. Some of you probably grew up singing those songs. Um, Both are so strong, aren't they, on the call to follow Jesus in this unhindered and comprehensive way. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to Him, I freely give. I surrender all. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. That really summarizes the second half of this sermon, those songs. And it summarizes them really well, helpfully. But if you don't have the first half, you're left asking, why, how, do I do that? If you just walk in on someone singing that, you're like, what got into you? How did you get there? The good news is that Jesus surrendered all to the Father. Jesus was committed to his mission of going to the cross and there was no turning back. The New Testament does a wonderful job of putting those two realities, that tension, holding that tension together in the Christian life. We don't always do that well. We, we speak sometimes of, of being saved, and we want you to get saved, but then we leave off this, this call of discipleship that we're saved into. Or we only sing, I surrender all, I've decided to follow Jesus, and make the Christian life just more about my sacrifice, my effort, and not resting in the work of Christ. So, The New Testament puts those things together. Two examples, Philippians 2 is 1, verse 5 through 8. You don't have to turn there, just just hear it. You know this, have this mind among yourselves. So think I surrender all. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was born in the form of, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He surrendered all. The second is from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I surrender all, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He surrendered all. So both of those passages put those those commands to surrender and follow together with what what Jesus has done. They root them in in the one who surrendered and walked this road of suffering before us. That, that, that word follow is so key in our passage. You see it in verse 57, 59, and 61 again. As these three would-be disciples who are considering following Jesus have this conversation with him. And Jesus makes it really clear what it means up front to follow him. I love you and have a difficult plan for your life. Is what he says. As he's on his way, setting his face for Jerusalem for them, he emptied himself, humbled himself, was rejected, and carried our shame. Have this mind among yourselves. Lay aside any sin, any weight that clings so closely and entangles from following him and run the race. This is Christianity. Trust Jesus follow Jesus. No turning back. We'll see those two halves working together in our passage. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to make two points that are going to summarize that first and second half. Point number one, look to Jesus. Point number one, look to Jesus, verses 51 to 56. Look to Jesus. And then number two, don't look back. Don't look back, verses 57 to 62. Every single day, look to Jesus, don't look back. he's worthy of that he's worthy of, worthy of that life. So first, we see a visual picture of the greatest man who ever lived, decisively now turning intentionally toward his death, toward the cross. So number one, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. This is a major turning point in Luke's gospel, especially verse 51 marks the the place where we see it turn the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry and the beginning of his journey toward Jerusalem. That's 951. So from here on out, we're gonna see fewer miracles, fewer extended blocks of public teaching, and fewer crowds. The journey that begins here actually runs all the way up to chapter 19, where Jesus finally goes up to Jerusalem on a donkey weeping because he knows that Jerusalem has rejected God and will be destroyed. Those days are drawing near. And so we read there in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I just want to remind you that the Bible is amazing. And when you read it, you should read it thinking the Bible is amazing. It's It's got way more than we think going on with it. And I don't always think that when I open it, but it does. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we walk through this passage, um, especially what we've seen in context. We've seen Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the mountain, on the transfiguration, discussing Jesus' coming departure, and Luke uses the word Exodus. So we have this kind of thematic walk we've seen of Exodus. Uh, We we see Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets, and we know later that Jesus is going to say that he is the fulfillment. Everything in the law and the prophets is written about him, concerning him. We need to keep that in mind as we read these passages like this. We want to read all of the Bible as Christian scripture because that's what Jesus taught his disciples to do, all of it. And so when we go to a passage like this, even this verse, we should be thinking about typology, okay? And that's a fancy word that just means we're looking for types, things that happen in history um, kind of over here and that happen over here and over here again. Sometimes it's in people, sometimes it's in patterns, uh, sometimes it's in events, but those patterns, those people, they continue to point to Christ in, in ways of increasing importance, or es- the importance escalates. We're going to see that a lot today. We've seen the connections with Jesus as, as the greater Moses. And, and today we're going to see several connections between Jesus and Elijah, and Elijah's um, disciple, Elijah's um, replacement, Elisha. This phrase, even this phrase, taken up, uh, it, it points... To to not only Jesus coming suffering right he's going to be lifted up taken up on a cross but but also his ascension that's how it's used most in the New Testament being taken up taken up into glory and so we remember that Elijah the prophet had a very interesting uh, being uh, departure he was also taken up alive so he wasn't he wasn't dead he was taken up alive from the earth in chariots of fire. Those connections are important for Luke because I think they're important to Jesus, as we'll see. So what does it mean then for him to set his face to go to Jerusalem? That's not uh, something we use often. I'm setting my face for lunch or whatever those, may, those things may be. But it means something like he fixed his eyes or he set his mind. He was determined. He was determined to go and not just go, but to embrace all that awaited him in Jerusalem. Think about that. Here again, our Old Testament proves to be the best commentary for the New Testament. The theme of Isaiah 50 and 52 and 53 and and go on is is the sin of Israel and the suffering servant that God would use and send as a savior. Listen to that servant speaking in Isaiah 50, verse 8. The Lord God has opened my ear. This is the servant. And I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Here it is. Here here is your anchor. That Jesus knows exactly what's coming. He's the servant. The cross is not an unfortunate accident or a mistake that he's walking into, you know, a trap. Jesus going to Jerusalem on purpose with a single-minded devotion and wholehearted courage to die for sinners. The servant, he says, was not rebellious. He, he didn't turn backward, but he set his face like flint, like a stone, to face not just the nails and the whips and the rejection, but the wrath of God, to take on the humiliation, humiliation and the pain and the shame and the wrath of God trusting in the one who vindicates him, who is near. But that's not all. He would also be taken up in glory. He would not just be taken up on the cross and laid in a tomb, but rise from the grave. He would ascend to heaven in, also in Jerusalem. There was joy set before him, but it came through rejection and suffering. Friends, knowing all this, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Nothing would deter or distract him from doing what he was called to do for our salvation. Praise the Lord for his obedience. Praise the Lord for his great love. Any sacrifice we make, we're going to hear about sacrifices and leaving and and, and walking away from comfort, anything that we do, pales in comparison to this. And it would not take long before Jesus' experience and we begin to see this theme of rejection really clear. Look there in verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. If you're looking on a map, the quickest route from Galilee to Jerusalem is through Samaria. The Samaritans were a mixed race of Israelite and Gentile blood. Jews believed that they had compromised their faith. Samaritans believed the true place of worship was not Jerusalem, but their own Mount Gerizim. And they only recognize the first five books of Moses, not the rest of the, the Old Testament. There's this long history of conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. This isn't the first last time we're gonna hear about Samaritans in Luke's gospel, but it often include, included armed violence. The last thing a Samaritan would wanna do is to help a Jew get to Jerusalem. The last thing. And knowing this, Jesus goes to Samaria. He goes to this place that knowingly is going to be hard. Knowingly, there's, there's likelihood of rejection. And he goes anyway. And they rejected him. And that does not sit well with some of the disciples. Look at verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Again, there's more going on here than just anger and impatience. It's probably not less, but there is some of that. But again, the Bible is an amazing book. There's there's biblical precedent for this kind of thing. I mean, really close to this kind of thing. God, a prophet, a man of God, calling down fire from heaven to consume enemies. Samaritan enemies. If you remember in uh, 2 Kings There's a Samaritan king who's on his roof and falls through the lattice and hurts himself, mortally wounds himself. And then he goes to to, to one, he wants to know if he's going to survive and he sends out messengers to to ask Beelzebub, Baalzebub, if he's going to survive. Elijah intersects those messengers and says, is there not a God in Israel that you can ask? He says, go and tell your master that he will not recover king doesn't like that news, doesn't like to hear the word of God, the prophetic word of God, and so he sends someone to destroy the one who spoke it. But not just by themselves, he sends a a group of 50 soldiers to destroy Elijah. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, let fire from heaven come down and destroy you 50. And fire from heaven comes down and destroys them. He sends another 50 soldiers. Again, if I'm a man of God, let let fire from heaven come down and destroy you, destroys them. The next guy comes bending on his knee and says, Lord, help me, don't, don't kill me. And Elijah eventually comes peacefully. There's biblical precedent for this. And I, and I, I think there's, there's a show of really a faith of James and John here, believing that Jesus has empowered them to do this. So it's a reminder that you can have biblical precedent, even wanting to do something for the honor of Jesus and still be wrong. They're wrong. Obviously, Jesus rebukes them, verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Jesus rebukes them. Why? Well, they're right about a lot of things. They're right about the sin of the Samaritans. They're right they deserved judgment from God right then. But they're wrong about the nature of Jesus' mission. Jesus has actually come to save those who reject him by dying in their place. That's why he's come. He's come to take the judgment upon himself for our rejection of him. This is the glorious gospel of grace. Dear friend, I hope you see this. We are these Samaritans that reject Jesus. We deserve fire from heaven to come and consume us. And Jesus offers mercy. That offer of mercy is for you even today. It's available for you even today if you would put your faith and trust in Jesus. We've all sinned like these Samaritans and rejected God's good purposes for us and turned Jesus away. We stand in their shoes. And instead of calling fire down to consume us, he goes to be consumed by the fire of God's wrath for us. If you have the ESV, you may have a footnote there. Some early manuscripts say this. uh, You do not know the manner, Jesus says, of the spirit you are of. For the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. This is the day of salvation. To hear the call of Jesus that says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am gentle and lowly of heart. You can find rest for your souls in me. It's not to say that judgment won't eventually come. It will come. Peter makes that really clear in 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10. I think he captures the the tension well. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's God's patience. That's why fire hasn't come down and consumed us today. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Judgment is coming. In the next chapter, Jesus says this about what's going to happen to those that reject him. He's referring to a town that rejects him in Luke 10, 10. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Sodom, where fire and sulfur rain down from heaven. More bearable for those that ultimately reject Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. And this is a lesson that James and John, the sons of thunder, needed to learn. And they would learn it. Guess who's one of the first groups that comes to Christ in the book of Acts? The Samaritans. Go read Acts chapter 8. They come to to know the Lord. They they come to repent and believe and trust Christ. And then they, they need to send some apostles to go check it out to see if it really happened. And so they send Peter and John to affirm it. That they might also receive the Holy Spirit. It was actually the love of God in Christ that becomes the grand theme of John's whole life and ministry. May it be true of us. May it be true of us. When we encounter rejection, pray that we too would have the prayerful patience of Jesus and then move on to the next town, move on to the next opportunity because who knows what God may still do. We're not authorized to call down fire from heaven. We're sent to preach the good news, and that includes a warning about coming judgment. But we'll leave the judgment to God when he sees fit. In other words, we want to, beloved, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's number one. Now let's look at the second half of the passage under this heading, don't look back. Number one, look to Jesus. Number two, don't look back. In the face of rejection, Jesus takes this opportunity to teach about discipleship. What better time than in the face of rejection? Imagine Jesus and and the others walking along, and then now these three would-be disciples come up and seek to join the group. We actually don't know what happened to them. We don't know what they decided to do. Um, But we are only left with Jesus' responses to them. And I think that's on purpose, that we're supposed to focus there. And I think you'll notice a theme. All of the objections and obstacles have to do with home, the comforts of home, relationships and obligations at home, family, delaying discipleship because of those things. So again, Jesus is making another radical point. To follow him is more than just taking in information taking notes on what he said. It's a life-altering move, so much so that this world is no longer your home. The things that you saw as comfort and home are no longer your comfort and home. It's a shift in your deepest allegiance. Let's look at this first conversation there in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Again, Jesus front loads the call of discipleship with the cost of discipleship. Just a helpful reminder for us. It's not a bait and switch. He makes it really clear what it means to follow and what it's like up front with this eager brother that says, I will follow you wherever you go. May we have that heart. But Jesus points out the most unbelievable reality that really is animals have it better in this life than the son of God. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. Jesus has nowhere to lay his head. He has no home. He has left his home. And so before we sign up to follow Jesus, he wants us to know where he's going. He wants us to know That we too will be exiles, foreigners in this world. Certainly, Jesus takes advantage of hospitality when it's offered to him. We know that. But for the most part, he is a homeless evangelist. Giving up everything to be the savior that we needed. Another just glimpse at the cost of the incarnation, friends. We should stand in awe to know that Jesus, the Son of God, says, I have nowhere to lay my head. Don't let earthly things get in the way of true discipleship. He reminds this would-be disciple. I don't think Jesus means you can't have a house. He wants us to know that to follow him is to no longer fit in on this earth. This earth is no longer our home. And that means that we're no longer living for the comforts of this life, of home, like familiarity and security, even acceptance. The author of Hebrews reminds us that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So if you're a Christian here this morning, let me just ask you, how does following Jesus confront your desire for comfort? Above all, how does following Jesus confront your desire for comfort? It's not that Jesus calls us all to leave all that we have, but to make everything that we have available to Him. Everything we have needs to be on the table. So, friend, where is your earthly grip a little too tight? That if Jesus called you to let go of something, you might really have a problem is there anything that's keeping you from totally being devoted to him putting everything on the table is it just the the place where you live the proximity that you you are to family or the the maybe it's a love a desire of acceptance of being liked and thought of as someone who who does the right thing maybe there's an issue of giving that he's poking on in your heart. Sometimes one of those places that can make us think about where our true home really is. We've talked about this some as a church recently as we've, we're working toward approving a budget for the next year. Giving toward the work of the gospel in this place according to our covenant together. That in and of itself is not normal in this world. Where do the comforts of this life challenge your discipleship? As one author put it, if our following Jesus hasn't introduced any discomfort into our lives, something is wrong. That's what Jesus wants this would-be disciple to know. Look at the next interaction that we see here in verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and, and bury my father. I think the next two situations here, the issue is particularly of priority, priority. What's of first importance in your life? We see that word first appear in both these conversations. Just note that first. Let me first do something, Jesus. What will you put first? Jesus calls this person to follow him and he he reveals a family situation that's holding him back. And the request is to be, be able to first go and bury his father. Now, this sounds very reasonable. Uh, and on first blush, Jesus' response seems maybe on the harsh side. Wouldn't Jesus want us to uphold the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother? We know in another place, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders for finding loopholes uh, in supporting their family because they're, they're dedicating their money. They're using, calling it Corbin, They're dedicating it to God so they don't have to support their family for these religious reasons. Jesus rebukes them for that. So we wanna factor all those things in as we think about what Jesus is calling us to. What's going on? I, there's a couple things to think about. One is the, the nature of burial, the burial of the dead uh, for the Hebrews. It just it took present, uh, precedence over most everything else in Jewish life, even studying the Torah and prayer. This was an urgent thing. Uh, 24 hours is usually the time it would take for, for, for a family member or a friend to receive burial. So to leave your father unburied would have been seen as really the utmost of neglect. And this is what leads many scholars to think that that it's actually unlikely that the man's father is actually dead. Uh, If he had actually died, um, he would probably be tied up with the duties of the funeral or maybe have already been uh, kind of ritually made unclean. And so he wouldn't be out and about with uh, others hearing Jesus. And so many think that Jesus, this man is actually referring to his father who is not dead, but dying, or who is even just elderly and who he needs care and eventually will die. So this, this could actually be kind of an indefinite delay of discipleship. But it could also be, of course, just Alan face value that, that he's died and needs to go be buried. Either way, this, isn't, this doesn't seem to be on its face a sinful motivation. It's good to want to take care of family. It's a a biblical thing. But Jesus says there's something that takes priority over even that. Look at what he says in verse 60. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. By dead, Jesus, I think, means spiritually dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. And so we know this is what sin does. It brings death. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus makes that really clear here, doesn't he? There are some things that spiritually dead people, lost people, can do just as well as followers of Jesus. You might even say taking care of family is one of those things. They, there's, There's... There's lost people that know they they have a responsibility and do take care of their family. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. But you do have to be a Christian to proclaim the kingdom of God. You can't pawn that off. You can't have someone who's spiritually dead do that. And Jesus says you should let the dead bury their own dead, whether this man is delaying or there's something else going on, and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, there seems to be no urgency, perhaps, in the man's response to Jesus. And Jesus picks up on that. Even more important than the sacred duty of family is a commitment to me, he says. And, of course, we know it's actually our commitment to Jesus that drives our commitment to love and care for our family in a right and biblical way, in a more sacrificial way than otherwise. The best thing for our families is that we would know and love Jesus and put Jesus first. That's the way we will love them best. So friend, think about that urgency for a moment. I just want to encourage you not to put off following Jesus, not to put off taking steps of obedience with Jesus even one more day, even one more hour, even one more minute. Of all the excuses that someone can have, this one is the best. It's the best. It's the the one that would make most sense. Got to go bury my dad, and that that doesn't fly. Even priority over that, Jesus says, is to follow him. What's keeping you from following him today? If Jesus, one author says, is the son of God, our first duty is toward him. A man who considers that he has a prior prior duty to fulfill before he is free to become a follower of Christ has no concept of who Christ is. Nothing is more important than following Jesus, not even the claims of our own families. We must do what Jesus wants us to do before we do what our family wants us to do. This is also the context for the third conversation that that Jesus has here in verse 61. It just kind of folds right into it. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. There's that word first again. This guy is saying, hey, I'm not gonna go do what he did, go bury people. I'm ready to go even faster than that. I'm just gonna go tell my mom and dad, bye. And then I'll be right with you. Here again, this is not the first time that this sort of thing happens in scripture. We're just following along, reading, you know, first and second Kings. I mean, you feel like you're reading the gospel of Luke. After Elijah came down from the mountain with God, he was told to go find Elisha. And he walks up on Elisha. And this is what we read in first Kings 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shapat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him saying, in other words, you're going to be my disciple, follow me. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother. And then I will go follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? Is <laughs> The Bible is, is great. In this case, Elijah allows Elisha to go back and say goodbye. So surely, again, biblical precedent, surely this would be okay with Jesus to go say goodbye. But we read in verse 62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, Don't you think Jesus thinking about this instance in 1 Kings 19 puts your hand to the plow like Elisha was plowing? Now, the interesting thing about Elisha is that when he went back home to say goodbye to his parents, goodbye to his family, he did that. But then he actually makes a really clean, clean break with farming forever. He actually burns his plow and slaughters the ox. He's not going back. There's no turning back to that life. He's made a clean break, and he's going to follow the man of God no matter what. But Jesus doesn't even give that option here to this man. Apparently, he knows that, that if he went back home, he would be tempted to, to, to stay. Or if he, or if he, he we went home and went, he would still wish he was back home, and he might be looking back. I think that, that, that phrase, don't look back on the plow, is referencing what Elisha did. He burned it. No turning back. He burned that old way of life. So Jesus makes the point really clear. No one plows a field by looking backward. If you want to plow a straight furrow, you have to keep looking ahead at some fixed point in the distance. If a farmer keeps looking back to see if he's lined up right, he's going to zigzag all over the place and it's going to be terrible. He's instead to look to Jesus and follow him without delay. Friend, I wonder if you ever wrestle with this same temptation. We want to wait a little longer before we get serious with Jesus, or we want to maybe set off with Jesus kind of halfway with good intentions, but really deep down in our heart longing that we could go back or even keeping that life that we left nice and tidy in case we want to go back to it. Those old sins, our old way of thinking, those old promises, old relationships or, or patterns that we were in, instead of leaving them behind, we're, we're, we're kind of having them wait for us in case we come back. That's what Israel did in the wilderness, Exodus 16. The people of Israel said, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord at the, that in the land of Egypt, than in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots, and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So dangerous to think like that and to talk like that. Just reading the Exodus, we know that. Reading the book of Genesis, we know that. Lot's wife looked back. Genesis 19, 26, fleeing Sodom. She looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Double-minded discipleship is no discipleship at all. Jesus calls us to hold fast to the confession of the gospel of grace, continue in the faith, not shifting from our hope in Christ. We've walked away from the old self. We've walked away from our old life forever. Don't look back. Don't look back. Keep your eyes on Jesus, surrendering all that you have to him and the giving your life to do the work of Christ. John Wesley put it like this, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can, in all the places you can and in all the times you can to all the people that you can as long as you can. And I think Jesus would add from our passage as soon as you can, as soon as you can. One missionary wrote about what it felt like to live this out. She described a dense fog that had descended and began to darken her soul when she had left her home in America to serve the Lord overseas. She said this, I've been trying to maintain contentment. She wrote in a newsletter to friends back home, I've been trying to maintain contentment, but I don't quite fit. Life lacks the homey familiarity of the state's, And this new culture persists in its strangeness. Where is my home? With my heart in a quandary, I have continued seeking to be a stable mom and wife, yet feeling anything but steady in the ongoing wrestling match with the unfamiliar. And as she wrestled with these issues, she came to this redefinition of what it meant for her to be home. Here's how she explained it. Then today... The Lord brought transcending comfort through a special wise friend who had experienced this same since 16 years ago when the Lord moved her family overseas. With resonant empathy, she breathed words of encouragement straight from the word of God into my heart. Psalm 90 verse one. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. She reminded me The Lord himself is my dwelling place, the place that never changes, my home. A sense of stability began to infuse me, and the fog began to burn away. Friends, it's then when we say, truly, I surrender all. Though none go with me, it doesn't matter. Still, I will follow. No turning back, because he is our home. That's my call this morning. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus as you follow him. Trust him. Look to him. And don't turn back. Let's pray. Lord, we confess this is just is very hard. And I know in my own heart, a list of failures um, arise. So I'm so thankful for the gospel. I'm so thankful that the Christian life is not just a call to asceticism and to make things hard for the sake of being hard and not to enjoy things, but I'm so thankful for the joy that comes with following you. The joy that was set before you is the joy that was set before us. There's no other joy like following you, like knowing you. There's no other contentment. But Lord, we, we need to be reminded that it, it comes through the road of suffering. It comes through this, this road of Calvary, taking up our cross daily, denying ourselves and following you. That we know is the path to true joy in life. And would you help us to remember it? Would you help us to believe it, Lord? That there's nothing on earth that compares with you. We hear lies every day, every moment. Will give us discernment, we pray, by your Spirit. And Lord, give us grace to follow you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.